All right, we're going to go ahead and get started with the panel. So first and foremost, I would like to introduce our panelists. Starting from left to right, we'll start with Jared Winton. Jared, do you want to say hi real quick and say what you do at the university? Yep. Hi, my name is Jared Winton. I work at the university with Research Platform Services. Uh, I'm involved in supplying research infrastructure to researchers. Uh, so specifically, I'm more involved with large data, large data storage, moving data around, and letting people work with their data. So Jared gets all the world's problems when it comes to data. Over to Dr. Alborello. Come on, don't say this time, man. Uh, I'm just talking to the Center of Ocean Engineering. So I study waves. Waves what is what they do. Same waves, uh, wave, wave analysis, interaction, interaction with the atmosphere. So it's sort of about waves. Are there any surfers in the room? Anybody surfer like to swim or play in the waves? Go ahead, raise your hand. It's okay. I love it too. Yes, that's it. That's it. We like interactive panels. That's why I'm standing in the audience. Because uh, we already asked a question to you. Kim, take it away. Tell us what you do. Um, hi, I'm a master's student in atmospheric science. So I research how massive continent sized clouds. Turn on the mic, Kim. I think it might be off. Sorry about that. I'm a master's student here at the University um, in Atmospheric Science and I'm researching how massive clouds, continental scale clouds, are affecting rainfall in Australia. And last but not least, Dr. Andrew Keane. Hi, uh, my name's Andrew. I study climate change and um, extreme weather and just how extreme weather events are changing and um, how um, how to improve forecasting extreme weather events as well. Excellent. Okay, so first question. And by the way, the reason I'm standing out here in the audience is I'm going to be coming around and everyone is giving me eye contact. It's going to be asked a question. Yes? Yes? Ooh, dangerous. But the first question to our panelists, uh, and we'll go from right to left, so Andrew will start with you. What do you think of the film? Is it, is it a good example of the way researchers can actually get impact for what they're doing? Uh, well, it's, it's a particularly good example. Um, yeah, there's not many of us who go out and work with filmmakers and uh, use this kind of method to try and communicate our science, but it seems to work really well. So should researchers be working with filmmakers, do you think? Uh, probably depends. Like, if we've got a message that we particularly want to communicate to a really wide audience, then yeah, maybe we should be. What do you about you, Kim? What do you think of the film? Yeah, I think it's great. Um, humans respond really well to visual things, so showing pictures of the coral bleaching is going to have a far bigger effect than a journal article filled with jargon and numbers. Very nice. Alberto, what do you think of the film so Oh, yeah, pretty good. Yeah. And like, uh, I'm more into physics, so I think for those people, it's easier to showcase like how global change is affecting us by showing like nice features. For what you do, it's a little bit harder to show nice features, get nice videos. That's all. Jared, what about you from a big data point of view? Is this, is this the way we need to talk about research data to the world? Um, I'm not, not too sure about the big data point of view, but I think one of the nice things about this, and it's exemplified in a few other areas, is just the ability for others to help communicate uh, the outcomes of research with sort of a general 
the general population. It's not always the easiest thing to do to communicate research in a way that's accessible to the public. And this, I think, is one of the good examples of that. Absolutely. Over to the audience, anybody want to make a comment on the film thus far? Anybody think it's uh, good or bad? This is something that I found a little bit odd at the start, like there's this guy that's really passionate about grief, and he's like, oh, it's so sad that it's still bleaching and no one knows about it, and you think it would happen to people that should have noticed it earlier, but it's all meant to the whole public? Why does it have to be as soon as someone advertises and it's like, oh, I'm going to make a difference? Yes, a very good question. So basically, it wasn't a researcher who really started this project, was it? Anything on the panel on that? Do you think researchers should? Be, I got we found this before. It's, should you guys be as part of your PhDs and your masters actually reaching out to the wider community? I mean, apropos, you guys are sitting on a panel trying to talk about this, so you're more trying to reach out. I mean, like sometimes it's a good chance to see the climate change and oxygen. It's complicated because, like, nobody really cares because it doesn't affect your main life kind of change. For example, in my field, with the waves, we've got a lot of research after the prestige accident because we got in the news. So, a lot of work on whether waves start after a big accident, they catch, like, the general audience, whether like sometimes, like, waves are there, but it should be there. And that's one of the big problems that researchers face. And you have to keep in mind that, like, yeah, you do it for passion, because otherwise it would be, like, my case working for an offshore company and getting, like, probably three times the money again. But I don't care about that. I'm passionate about what they do. And sometimes it's hard to get funding, it's hard to get research, it's hard to get the audience to listen to us. So, great point. And by the way, for those of you who are asking questions, you do get Maltesers here. So uh, Pablo here will be passing out Maltesers. So if you ask a question, there's a little incentive. So one of the things we really wanted to do with this panel is, of course, allow the researchers to talk about their research. And we have three really exciting next generation researchers here in the fact that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up big time, but the researchers are going to correct me on this. So Alberto obviously looks at the simulation data for the way the waves work in the southern ocean and what happens with those. Uh, as a surfer, I'm obsessed with this idea, but it's more important than just my, my surf, isn't it? Then we've got Kim, who's actually looking at continent-sized clouds. Now, I've started calling these, probably wrongly, ocean rivers, you know, sky rivers. You know, this is, these are rivers that go through the sky for continents and all the rest of it. So we'll let Kim correct me on a second there. And then last but certainly not least is Dr. Andrew King, who's been looking at temperature data over centuries. So actually understanding the temperature change that we see. So tonight what we really want to do is kind of showcase what these young researchers are looking at and why it's so valuable. So to jump right in, I am going to jump right to Kim because I, I, I want to give you the chance to correct me and actually say what these kind of sky rivers are about, or atmospheric bands, or tell me, what do you mean by this? And I'm going to pull up a map here as well, so Skip, so Kim can actually give you an idea of how large these, these clouds and these water formations are. Take it away. So the technical term is atmospheric rivers, but I like sky rivers, that could be the new thing. So they're basically long, thin bands, so they're at a minimum at least 1,500 kilometers long, and the length is 
usually at least double the width, and they transport moisture from the tropical regions to the extra tropics, and they transport a lot of moisture. So a single atmospheric river in the sky can transport more than the Nile and Amazon combined. So there's a big one, you may have heard of the movie, the Pineapple Express, that goes from Hawaii to California, and it can cause like big rainfall extremes and wind extremes over that west coast of America. And we have one around Australia that goes from the Indian Ocean and it moves around so it might go like that or like that. And you can get these massive cloud bands that literally stretch 2,000 kilometres or so from the northwest of the country all the way down to Victoria and transport moisture from the tropics to the mid-latitudes and cause flooding in the desert and waterfalls over all the road. So Kim, you were telling me that, the, that we, we are kind of in trouble because these rivers are changing because of, of what's happening in the environment. So what are we going to see in Victoria or Tasmania in terms of where these, these rivers are dumping out and eventually getting up? What, what, what's the kind of future you're seeing? Yeah, so with my research I found that there's been an increase in the number of these rivers or cloud bands for the last 30 or so years, particularly in summer. So what could happen, but it's still an area of hot research, um, is we could kind of start getting more of a tropical feel to Victoria in summer. So it might be, instead of having our wet season in winter, we could start to get a wet season in summer like they do in Queensland and the Northern Territory. Okay, let's go to the audience. Anyone have any questions about these, these sky rivers, as I like to call them, the atmospheric bands? And remember, we get all teasers. Yeah, fine. Cool. And then you got another one on the other way, starting on someone. Paul, teaser first. Yep, so there's a saying in climate science that the wet will get wetter and the dry will get drier. So it's predicted that the tropical regions will still get even wetter and we've already seen an increase in rainfall in the northwest of the country, which is where these clouds hit. Any other quick questions for Kim before we jump to one of the other researchers? Ooh, we've got one of this one, the actual microphone, we've got a podcast going. Um, my question was related to Drought yeah. and the effect of these clouds on uh, drought, or whether they're going to make uh, the environment wetter. Um, but in terms of climate change, where do the clouds fit? Yep. So there's two questions in that. I'll answer the first one on drought. The rainfall pattern with these clouds is quite interesting. That you get. A band of increased rain across the centre of the country, but you actually get decreased rain either side of the band, so in southwest WA and along the east coast. So that suggests that although we're getting more bands and more rain in the northwest, it might actually contribute to drought elsewhere. And your second question about climate change. So these are what we call a weather phenomenon. So you've got climate, which is things that happen over a long time, so the average trend of the weather. So with things like warming in the Indian Ocean, that could contribute to more clouds. So we might not 
it'll be hard to observe something on like a yearly scale, but over decades we're seeing a slow increase in the frequency of the cloud bed. Fantastic, thank you, Kate. excellent stuff. Let's give a little round of applause for Kate. So I think the climate change issue, we're gonna have, we are going to have to pass it over to Dr. Andrew King. So um, a lot of people have questions around this, this temperature change over you know, decades, centuries. Uh, and I think one of the, to, to be a bit excited about Andrew's research for him, I think of it as an extreme weather forecaster. So he's actually thinking about you know, the drought that might happen, the fires that might happen, the severe rain towards the tsunamis, are we going to see on the news soon talking about the horrible events that are going to come? Andrew, talk to us a little bit about your research and what you're starting to see and a little bit about the future you expect us to see in terms of extreme weather. Yeah, so, um, I, yeah, so I look at lots of different types of extreme weather, as David was saying, and um, how climate change and, and climate variability affect them. So um, for heat waves, for example, we're seeing much worse heat waves, more frequent, more intense, longer heat waves affecting Australia. And I look at how climate change is, is um, affecting those heat waves and, and quantify uh, the changes. Um, I looked as well at um, marine heat waves, a bit, including uh, the marine heat associated with the, the bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef in uh, 2016, uh, which um, we've seen a lot about of just um, going into uh, the 2016 event in, in the film. And um, what my research was showing that was that uh, without climate change, this kind of event would be virtually impossible. It's, um, it's kind of like a black swan event, something that's just outside uh, what we could get just from the natural climate variability alone. So this is important. Let's let's really be specific. Andrew's very calm about this because he's a he's a smart scientist. But you're definitively saying to me that if it were not for humans, this wouldn't be happening. That, that's right. So it's quite different from other types of extreme weather. If we look at say heavy rainfall events or droughts, usually we find that climate change might be amplifying them a bit, maybe um, making them like ten percent more likely, twenty percent more likely. This is different. What we're saying with the, the marine heat associated with the, the bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef and, and the subsequent death of coral on the reef is that it basically couldn't have happened without climate change. So without giving away the spoilers to this film, how much hope do you have for the Great Barrier Reef? Um, it's really quite depressing. Um, I think um, being a climate scientist or a coral scientist, unfortunately, is one of the more depressing <laughs> types of scientists to be. Um, even if we, most of you have probably heard of the Paris Agreement, where we're trying to limit global warming to one and a half degrees or two degrees. It's really, really optimistic um, and ambitious. And even if we do that, these kinds of events that we're seeing, um, like in 2016, would be occurring in most years. So bleaching is going to become a, just an every year occurrence, just about. And um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a real challenge to, to save parts of the reef. So one of the best parts about meeting others, of course, we want to ask questions. So I look to the audience to ask uh, Dr. Andrew King. We're going to go here first, then we'll go there, then we'll go there. Yeah? Hi there, I'm um, Tweet for that. That's really interesting. I'm just wondering, what kind of any delay 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, if we act to, to really um, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions now, um, unfortunately there's um, so much inertia in the climate system that we would continue to see sun warming for, for some, you know, the next couple of decades, and we would probably see a few more bleaching events. Um, so, I, I don't want to be too pessimistic here. Um, there's lots of benefits to, to limiting our emissions, reducing global warming. Um, but, yeah, for large parts of the, the reef, it's probably too late already. And look, I think that what's really interesting is the fact that, hands down, it's about getting more money to researchers so they can figure out how to abate this problem. There's no saving what will be the largest fossil that will be able to be seen from space, but if we get more researchers able to study this stuff, I think we'll have a really good chance. We're going to go to a question right over here. Hi, Ned. Thank you for that. I'm more of a technician. My question is really since we're looking at climate change, we're looking at like water getting hotter, but we're also looking at the like, colder regions getting warmer. So how does that impact on coral life if you're watching it getting colder? Like, do you think that we'll see a shift in like tropical coral life appearing in the regions soon, or do you think that there's going to be a shift in ecosystems that's going to happen? Yeah, that's a good point. So um, we know that in the subtropics, so Places like Sydney are becoming more like Brisbane's today. They're going to be more, yeah. Sydney's going to be more like uh, Brisbane's climate in 100 years' time, for example. The, the climate zones are shifting away from the equator. Um, so that's true. Some of the coral could migrate um, southwards. The problem is um, it, it doesn't move quickly enough, basically. Um, so we could artificially move some of it, and, and there are projects that looking looking at how to do this. But it would only save very very small parts of the reef. And we do actually get um, we have other types of coral um, outside the tropics. Um, so um, not the, the colourful coral we see on the Great Barrier Reef, but there, there are corals in Sydney Harbour, for example. Um, and even off the coast of Tasmania, and they, they're used to see different temperatures, and they've also been affected by bleaching as well in recent years. Okay, we're going to take one more question for Andrew King, though please know that Andrew, you can ping him on Andrew King Climb, C-L-I-M, on Twitter, and ask him additional questions. Uh, he's available for that, but we have one last question here for Andrew before we move on. Yeah, um, so you said that the gateways were because of human induced climate change. Um, so previously, like, obviously the world has gone into, like, gone into different climate events and everything, ice age and everything, and at one point the carbon dioxide levels were much higher than they are now. Has there any, like, been any records of previous bleaching events, or is it just at this rate by humans that this bleaching has happened? Or is there any? Um, that's, that's another good question. So, um, the, the Great Barrier Reef is, is only about 20,000 years old, um, so it didn't exist before the last ice age. Um, so, there were, yeah, 
I don't think we know for certain about you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago uh, whether there were coral reefs and bleaching events, but in the, the period that the Great Barrier Reef has existed, um, these are the most severe bleaching events. Um, we can do uh, we can use corals um, incidentally to uh, look at past temperatures. Um, so that a bit like ice cores, if you drill into coral, you can look back in time and you can see how warm it was. Um, and with when we do that, uh, we really see that there's nothing um, as warm as there is, is today. So even though that's very depressing news in some people's minds, uh, what I do want to say is that I, I do think there are some very exciting projects. Obviously, the Great Barrier Reef isn't the only bit of uh, nature left in our oceans, hence World Oceans Day. So please uh, make sure you tweet something. I do want to uh, just talk about, obviously, you can ask questions again to Andrew King Klein if you have further questions. Also, Kim's Twitter handle is CaptainKim95. So please do ask her about the uh, atmospheric bands for river oceans. But last but not least, maybe my uh, favorite uh, topic, just, just because of the surfside, and it really is one of the reasons we have the maps here is because there's something called the Southern Ocean, which nobody really realizes how important it can be. But the person who can definitely answer questions on that is Dr. Alberto Alvarello. So, Albert, Alberto, tell me, tell me about your research. What are you doing? What's exciting about it? What's interesting? And most importantly, why is the Southern Ocean so important for our future? Yeah, absolutely. Like, Southern Ocean is a big ocean, as everybody can see it up there. But nobody really cares about it because there are no commercial interests. And what's important is that the ocean, as we saw in the movie, it absorbs all the heat from the atmosphere and so on. And the funny thing about the Southern Ocean is it's in contact with Antarctica. Probably none of you have been in Antarctica, but that's one of the purest air in the world, where basically, like, humanity didn't ever get there. And so that's why there are so many reasons down in Antarctica to study climate. And now the climate look in the past 10,000, 100,000, a million years ago. And what's interesting is that, like, all the hours that we have around Antarctica, Antarctica basically doubles the size during the winter season because of the freezing. And what's happening is that the, the waves uh, that are in the Southern Ocean are generated by the wind that goes across all the Southern Ocean from South America, Africa, and then Australia, and then go around the things like Kuris uh, 50s and Skimming 60s. They, they put in the water and in the waves so much energy. And this interface where we have waves is where we have the exchange of energy, heat, and momentum. So, the, the water, the ocean, so also the heat we as humans generate, and at the same time it produces aerosol. And so it basically like regulates and some sort of the climate. And so that's why we have to understand a lot of waves and how the waves interact with the other aspect of the our like cryosphere, like the ice, and the atmosphere, which is the articles all around the globe. I think the coolest thing between these three researchers, and I'll also get Jared to ask a couple of questions here at this stage as well, is that all three of these researchers deal with really large data sets. So Kim's got over 30 years of satellite image, 
Andrew, you've got, well, I guess hundreds of years in terms of, well, millennia if you're talking about cores, but temperature data, how far does temperature data go back? Yeah, about um, 100, 200 years, depending yeah. where you are on the planet. And we're seeing that increase. Uh, and then, obviously, Alberto has got all this simulation data. So actually being able to look at the way the waves work with the ice and the water and the temperature and all the rest of it. And we couldn't do this big, interesting science unless we had the computational capability that we have at the university. And I think MATLAB, is that right? And you use, you want to talk a little, I want to talk a little bit about the tools you're using, because especially those in the audience who might be looking to go and do research, I want you to be kind of aware of the tools and the things you kind of need to be able to do it. So Kim, just quickly, what are some of the tools you use to look at that 30 years of satellite data? And Jared, please do jump in here and ask a question. Yep, so I use MATLAB, and that's the first coding language I learned because it's nice and easy to use. And currently, I'm using the machine learning toolbox as well on MATLAB. So I'm getting the computer to tell me what's important for these cloud bands. And Alberto, what do uh, what kind of tools do you use? Because it's much it's like wave simulations blow my mind in terms of trying to think about how you simulate that. Yeah, I was talking about uh, about that before with Jared, and yeah. Old school in the sense that we were ES4 program. Fortran is a very old program. It goes back to the 70s. It's truly old school. Yeah. There is a funny story. I have colleagues that work in this environment for quite a lot of years. And probably the most recent correct me if I'm wrong is the Fortran 95. I still had beat of code written in Fortran 77. 77 is way before I was born. As in 1977, <laughs> and 95 is the newest code base for culture, oh. and it's still not entirely used. Andrew, what's, what's some of the tools you use, and uh, what, what does that look like to be able to look at temperature data over a long period of time, let alone being able to simulate the planet in terms of this data? Yeah, so um, yeah, we need programming languages like Fortran as well to run our climate models, uh, basically because it's a very efficient programming language. Uh, but I normally use something that's a bit easier to use called IDL, which um, is quite common in atmospheric science and astrophysics. Jared, any thoughts or comments on this on, on the whole, especially in terms of, so Jared obviously, he's one of the things he, he does is care about the data for all researchers across the university. Any kind of overall comments on what it's like to be a researcher in this day and age? Um, yeah, and I guess coming back to uh, your question about the researcher's responsibility to communicate their research. That is getting more and more important, but it is also tricky to you know, find the communicators that are able to capture the public's attention. I'm sure, you know, coral bleaching is not something that has come out of the blue, but capturing somebody who's able to capture the public's imagination. There's, there's been a few over the years that sort of do it. I mean, in, in my field of particle physics, Brian Cox is a recent one, works at CERN. He's getting a lot of public attention. He's a really good communicator. Uh, Richard Feynman, another one from a while ago. Um, the cool lectures, look up the Feynman lectures, they're very funky. Um, but I guess one of the things that maybe each of you could start to talk about, and some things that do come up, particularly around the topic of climate science and some of the, the sensitivities around it, are communicating your data, getting your data out there, but also being able to prove that you have actually done research. So a lot of what we're doing at the university and a lot of the requirements are being able to generate your data, store your data, share your data, but have confidence of that data over long periods of time. So that if someone calls bullshit 
on what you're saying, you can actually go back to it and say, well, no, here are the measurements, here's what I've done, here's my programming, here's what I did. Therefore, you can sort of trust me. Doesn't answer all the questions, always belief comes into a bit. Um, but I don't know if each of you could sort of talk a little bit about what you're personally doing. I know a, a lot of you are in sort of big collaborations, and big collaborations have their own arrangements of where they publicly put that data, the processes that they go into to sort of guarantee that what you are doing is actually quality research. So I'm going to hold this there because we're at time, but I'm going to do a little bit of homework. So Andrew Kim and Alberto, will you please on Twitter uh, just post a little tweet to say what you are doing to make sure that your research is reproducible, right? Because essentially we don't know that you guys are telling us the truth unless I can go and look at your data and say, ah, I'm going to try to do this and see if it's reproducible, yes? Promise me you'll show me something? Okay, and please, you tweet everybody. We're going to play the rest of the film now, but would everyone please join me in thanking our next generation research panel.